Welcome to the favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman, along with my host, co-host, Black Jack Fletcher. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Huge, huge show today. So, um, one of my favorite people on Twitter is uh, Ben Mankiewicz, at Ben Mank 77. He's the host of Turner Classic Movies. He uh, he knows a lot about sports. He knows a lot about betting. Um, comes from a family of Hollywood royalty that also knows a lot about betting. And so I had asked him to come on the pod and talk about like a summer betting movie for our summer betting movie series that I'm announcing right now. So the first one is Oni Mahoney, and he's going to come on later in the show and talk about it. But before that, we got Matt Moore. Talking NBA, because is there anything going on in the NBA? Uh, not much, right? Finals are over, so just get ready for next October. Just really two days. They gave me two days, man. Two days. Here's they Matt Moore from the Action Maddie. Network, senior writer for the NBA. So, uh, Maddie, two days. So the Lakers pulled the trigger on the trade for Anthony Davis, uh, giving up basically their entire roster and cupboard full of draft picks. I, I mean. Is this as good a deal as New Orleans could have gotten done for this? I mean, it's hard to imagine they do better. Yeah, I think once Jason Tatum was off the board, this is the, the best they were going to get. So it's interesting to see how this worked out. If you go back to February and when the first trade request kind of came out publicly from Rich Paul, the same day, uh, Chris Haynes, who has reported on all sorts of manners of things with, with clutch sports, also reported that Anthony Davis was not interested in going to Boston because Kyrie Irving may not be returning. And so like, there's this feedback loop of Kyrie doesn't want to come back, so they can't go. So maybe AD doesn't want to go there, and so they can't go get AD because he may not have Kyrie. And like, there's this, this negative feedback loop. So once Boston was out, you were trying to get a one-year rental offer from one of these other teams to take a shot like the Raptors, but no team could really afford to give up what Toronto had, which was an all-star um, and DeMar DeRozan and a young prospect. They didn't have the kind of assets that they needed in order to get that done. So the Lakers really were the last remaining kind of team, and the Lakers were so desperate that they gave up control over the next bajillion years of draft control, including really favorable protections for the Pelicans. Like, one of the picks is it has to be top eight, otherwise it defers to the next year unprotected. Like, all the protections are in the Pelicans' favor. Um, they came out really well on this, especially – if you're shorting the Lakers stock, if you're saying, especially after LeBron leaves, they're not going to be a contender, you are setting yourself up for a potential windfall between the years of 2023 and 2026. Um, and that's right when Zion Williamson is going to be coming up on you know his prime. So I think all in all, it's an, an awesome deal for the Pelicans. All right, so you wrote a story, uh, a few stories, but in the aftermath of the trade, analyzing the Pelicans' prospects and writing about why you thought this was, was a pretty good deal for them despite Ingram's failings, despite, despite uh, Lonzo Ball's failings. Give us your take on season win totals for the Pelicans as they stand. I like the over a lot. It's in the low 30s. I, I think I looked at, if you go back in the number one pick, um, since we've got data, uh, and it goes back until... Really, you're looking at, at an 8-5, and five, which isn't awesome, but a good enough record with a lot of weird 
situations in there. Obviously, you got like Anthony Bennett and the Cavs traded one of the picks for the LeBron deal, et cetera. Um, but you got, especially when you look at the transcendent guys, the guys that are really transformative for their teams, the level Zion Williamson is expected to be at the next level. Um, I think that gives you an indication, a better indication of kind of what this is going to be. And now those teams both went over. LeBron and Anthony Davis's teams both went over in their first years. I think that's a good sign for Zion that you're looking at a team that's going to have talent out the box. They've got Drew Holiday. They're not moving Drew Holiday. Uh, they're, they've got a good coach in Alvin Gentry who they just signed an extension, so there's stability there. They've got a world of options. Like they're currently shopping the number four pick. And there's a bunch of teams in conversations for that. Um, so they're going to have an opportunity to upgrade either with a veteran or get multiple assets. I think there's a good possibility that the Pelicans are going to run kind of in the middle range um, there. I'm also very high on taking these teams that are not the worst of the worst, but kind of not really good, not 500, because of the fact that I think we're going to see so much load management next season that a lot of the top teams are going to get caught. So that's another reason why I'm really high on the Pelicans uh, over right now, even though that number is really early considering we haven't hit free agency yet. God, that is fascinating to be projecting basically end of season and sort of middle of season wins based on something the Raptors did this year to make Kawhi more effective in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we just saw we saw Kevin Durant go down with a major injury. We saw Clay Thompson and we saw a bunch of guys that were just banged up and didn't really have the stamina. And you saw Kawhi has come out of the playoffs as definably the best player in the league. And he was on the load management program of 60 games. I just think that that's going to have a ripple down effect where teams are going to start looking at it and saying, can we get, if you look at even this year's standings, the Bucks were the top team and they were only scraping 60 wins. Uh, we're used to seeing several teams hitting the high 50s. We didn't see that as much this year. Uh, you're going to see that, you think, even more next year where teams are going to say, look, we can get by at 50 wins. We can get, we're going to be in conversations for a four seed if we get to 50, 50, 51, 52. We'll be within range. And so can we slough off enough games in the interim to be able to get there and get these guys some rest? And I think that's going to sacrifice a lot of those, those kind of wins. We're going to see less tanking. So I think that the top teams are going to be kind of dragged down. I think the lower tier teams are going to kind of be pulled up a little bit by the availability of teams that aren't playing their stars. So, Maddie, we've got the draft on Thursday. We've already heard a bunch of rumors out today that maybe the Pelicans are trying to trade up to the two spot to take R.J. Barrett, that the Hawks are trying to move up into the three spot and give away eight and ten to the Knicks. What's the next domino to fall here? I think that the Pels are, are likely to make a play. I think knowing Griffin, I think that he's going to target – trying to get multiple return assets on the four. I think he's more likely to take a team um, that's in conversations. Kevin O'Connor from the Ringer reported that the Pacers are in conversations with him, and they've got a lot of young talent that they can't really make all fit, and they might be looking for a, a major upgrade into that four spot uh, to, to take Garland. So that makes a lot of sense for both sides. He's going to look and try and get a value player in terms of a rotation guy and maybe a move back. The Hawks, I think, are there as well. I also just – got to tell you – if there's a prop out there for trade, and we'll have that probably by Thursday for number of trades in the first round over under, I'm going to hit the over pretty hard because every team I've talked to is, has said, yeah, no, like we're we're looking up, we're looking down, and it's more so than most years. Most years they're like, yeah, I mean, we're exploring all options. That's what we do. Like you're in conversations and you're trying to do it. But so many teams are trying to move 
in. So many teams are trying to move out. The Thunder are trying to clear salaries, so they're offering up their pick. Uh, the Nuggets are trying to get in to try and acquire a pick to maybe make a move for a rotation guy to trade him back out again. There's just, I think there's going to be a lot of movement on draft night within this draft because this draft isn't good enough to where everybody's like, no, no, i got to keep my spot. The biggest story we've had in the past week is about the Lakers' odds to win the NBA title, which had been shrinking as sort of the rumors around Anthony Davis swirled. And then it went chaotic uh, when, um, when he actually was traded. Ravel had a great story about Darren Ravel had a great story about the better who put ten grand down on the Lakers to win the title uh, 27 minutes before the trade happened. And the best quote in the story is, it was clearly done with knowledge, which came from the bookmaker, you know, who was indicating, yeah, this is a better who usually knows things and made this bet 27 minutes before the trade happened, before anybody else knew what was going on. What do you make of that? What do you make the Lakers and sort of the influence of rumor and then the um, the appearance of fact that move these odds so aggressively? We've seen this before. The Raptors started moving last year. Um, their their odds started moving dramatically right before the Kawhi Leonard trade. Um, we saw a move beforehand on when they were close to a deal with Phoenix, and that wound up not working out. So. I think something to keep in mind is the media stuff that comes out is all with a purpose. I try and remind everyone of this, that every leak that you get in the media is done with a purpose. Somebody is saying, I want this information out there uh, for whatever reason. They may be exchanging for intel. That happens a lot. But for the most part, most of the information, especially on trades and stuff like that, is done with a purpose to try and exert pressure either from the agents or from the team or from the other team or whoever. Um, but that also means that like, <laughs> this information is out there. These teams, some teams are ironclad. Some teams really are that quiet. Um, the Spurs are an example of, of a team that's, even though that one got out, I'm pretty sure that one got out from the other side or from the agency. Um, the Thunder are pretty locked down. But most of these teams are pretty casual, and the information will get out. And oftentimes it's minority ownership. That's where I always wonder about these things is most of these teams don't have only one owner. It's minority ownership groups that own a large stake of these. And that's a lot of people that aren't, day-to-day that like being involved with an NBA team and like being able to talk about what they're involved in. And those are the areas where I think that that information probably gets out. The betting market, I think, especially as there's so much more attention paid and these markets become more volatile, I think we're going to see a lot more of this of the market telegraphing major moves in the NBA, more so than even what we're going to hear from some reporters because those reporters are being used tactically. You know, Matty, Chad mentioned the uh – the the odds of the Lakers winning the championship and how now they're the favorite, that just seems insane to me. I mean, I know they've added Anthony Davis and they've got LeBron and Kyle Kuzma and that's about it. I mean, how are the Houston Rockets not the favorite here? I mean, for the last two years, three years, Golden State has been the only impediment to them probably at least winning one of those championships. How are the Rockets, with the team they have, not the favorite here? Preach on, preacher. Like, I'm with you. Um, I think it's weird to say that the guy that won MVP two years ago that's going to be runner-up this year, James Harden, um, they're going to return a core mostly intact. They're also a front office that has proven that they're going to be aggressive. Like, they are 
they are out there in talks with a lot of their guys, including Clint Capella and Eric Gordon, two valuable players on the market that they're willing to talk about making moves for. Um, those are guys that can fetch upgrades. And they've got stable coaching, even though Mike D'Antoni's situation is with his contract it makes you a little uneasy. I don't think he's going anywhere this year. Um, they match up with all of the perspective contenders in the West, like the Nuggets, if you look at them and say, well, what about the Nuggets? The Nuggets can't beat Houston. In a matchup situation, they can't do it. We saw this year, it's all about matchups. Um, Portland, another team, can't do it. We'll see how the Lakers fill out their roster, but the point I made in, in the column I had on their title odds was, even if you're going to bet L.A., you don't do it now. You're going to get a much better number when they start off 8-7 and seven in November right. when they struggle because it's a totally new team. But we got to see how this team fills out its roster. I'm with you. I think Houston, is. you're going to get money, like you're getting a great number on them, and they're only going to go down, I think, as we get close to the beginning of the season. And I think that that Lakers number is going to go up, getting you much better value, especially once we get in season. If you have faith in LeBron and Anthony Davis, wait and suffer through the kind of struggles early, and that's when I think you're going to get the best value. But that's what makes future odds so interesting. They are not reflective of anything on the court. They are only reflective of activity in the market. Yeah. Yeah, and and the Lakers, uh, we've seen this consistently, that the Lakers throw all of this askew because of, you know, I think in part because of the proximity of Vegas to Los Angeles uh, and the number of residents that live there or split time there, but... Just in general, the Lakers are, we see them consistently generating way more action and moving and getting odds way closer than they should. Um, I looked it up yesterday. They were the fifth most profitable team to bet against straight up last mm-hmm. year. And that was after the book started just adjusting um, to the fact that they were terrible. So they, they've just consistently been a team that you can fade because of the Lakers effect of everyone believing way too much in them based on the brand. Matty, what's the latest you're hearing about the big free agents out there? I mean, we're hearing Kyrie Irving, Brooklyn, Kevin Durant, who the hell knows, um, Kawhi Leonard, you know, up in the air. Well, what are you hearing about these guys? Uh, Kyrie's been around. Like, the, the Brooklyn noise has been around for months, and I didn't report it because I couldn't get enough nailed down on it. But, like, that was something that was circulating back in, like, March. In March, that was a conversation that was being had was, you know, his dad really likes Brooklyn, and there's a lot of noise about Brooklyn. And I said that not to be like, oh, I knew it the whole time, but just that he hasn't – if I'm hearing that kind of stuff, then it's, it's so out there that everyone's kind of known. And the Boston Globe got it already, or the Boston Herald, rather. They've already got that he's pretty much committed um, to Brooklyn. Now, there's been some weird stuff with that over the last – since the Anthony Davis trade, there was a movement toward maybe he's going to change his mind and go to the Lakers, but then that's moved backwards in the other direction. And there continues to be a feeling that he's going to go there. Um, the Clippers, I checked in again. Uh, everyone I, I've talked to that has any sort of thoughts on Kawhi, um, they still feel like the Clippers are the ones that there's going to be two meetings. There's going to be a, a meeting with the Clippers and a meeting with the Raptors, and those are the only two meetings that are going to matter. Um, and there's a, while there's been a growing sense that the Raptors have put themselves in good position, they're not the favorites. That It's really is a coin flip between L.A. and Toronto until those meetings go down. And then the big one I think this morning was, you know, Al Horford opted out, and while I think that he wants to return to Boston, I, I just wonder what Boston's going to do because they have so many different options that they can go in, but they're also facing a really bad situation, having lost out on Anthony Davis and losing Kyrie. There's no really – there's a lot of questions I've talked to from people in the league about 
what's Ainge going to do? Is he going to go all in, or is he going to maybe scale back a little bit and build for a few years down the line? All right, so my last question is, based on all the speculation, based on the draft, based on what we know now, if I'm making a bet, a futures bet today, who am I making it on? Where's the value? You're getting great great numbers on the Warriors to win the title. You're getting... You're getting just incredible odds on a team that still is going to return. Clay Thompson is going to be back by March. ACL injuries just aren't what they used to be. They're no longer these season-altering injuries. They're just, it's a long-time recovery. It's a major surgery, but the science has gotten so good around it. He's going to be back by, by probably all-star around then, if not the beginning of April, and they will still be in position to make a run. As long as they're in the playoffs, are you going to feel good? Especially, I think that Myers is going to go in and he's going to adjust. He's going to improve the bench knowing what they've got to do. You're still going to have Steph Curry. You're still going to have Draymond Green, most likely. Um, you're still going to have all these options, even without KD. I know we just saw him lose to the Raptors, but think about how close they were. Like Danny Green lost the ball. If Steph makes that three, we're likely going to a game seven, and who knows what happens then. That's how close they were with KD playing a quarter of that entire series. So to me, with the number that you're getting at the Warriors, it's at 10 at some places. I think that you're getting the best value on Golden State. I think Commute's going uh, to really wreak havoc with the Warriors and Steph Curry, and so it's going to take him longer to get the stadium. He's not going to be as happy. San Francisco traffic, that's yeah. where you're going? It's going to get him down. Okay, good analysis. All right, Matt Moore, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Next up, we're bringing on Ben Mankiewicz. We're going to talk about a uh, a gambling movie, a great gambling movie. Or was it? Mm, the movie stinks. Dude. Spoiler. Dude. Stinks. I'm setting it up. I finished it. All right. As promised, I have been looking forward to this guest for a very long time, and then I finally had the courage to DM him on Twitter and say, hey, <laughs> will you come? It's true. It's true. Will you come on the podcast? Uh, Mr. Ben Mankiewicz, host of Turner Classic Movies. I should warn you, you're on with me and my co-host, Blackjack Fletcher. Hey, Ben. How you and doing? It's very uh, I'm, possible. I'm, Go ahead. I'm, I'm well. You have a very low threshold for courage. Yes. Um, well, is, uh, uh, you, you wrote the best uh, gambling book ever written. Well, um, I appreciate that. Uh, and it's true. I also, that, that is a true statement. Uh, and as is the fact, I have a low threshold for courage. Um, but of course, you are the host of Turner Classic Movies. You are the face of Turner Classic Movies. Um, you have an incredible Twitter feed at BenMank77, and you also know quite a bit about quite a bit about sports, quite a bit about sports betting. Uh, and so we decided you were going to come on, and and we were going to have an informal summer movie sports betting series and I asked you to come on and we could sort of you know play a little bit of what you do on uh your television network and um review like an an older movie and so you suggested a movie Owning Mahoney as sort of one of the better sports betting movies but before we get to that and we're going to talk about that before we get to that um I do feel like you need to explain a little bit about your family history because you grew up literally almost at the intersection of Hollywood royalty and political royalty. Explain to people. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. I grew up in D.C. I was sort of unaware of the Hollywood 
royalty part. I, I knew the family's history. I just didn't know that it was a how big a deal it was to people out here. But first, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, my dad was a, a, a big deal inside the Democratic Party uh, in Washington. He'd been Robert Kennedy's press secretary. Before that, he'd been Latin American director of the Peace Corps. That's where he met the senator. Went to work for him in the Senate office, then was press secretary for his campaign. Uh, then he was George McGovern's uh, sort of political director, co-campaign manager with Gary Hart in 1972. Ran for Congress himself in 1976 and lost, or 74. No, nobody lost in 74, 76. And, uh, um, and then was president of National Public Radio uh, for five or six years. And his father, Herman Mankiewicz, uh, wrote the screenplay for, for Citizen Kane. And his younger brother, Joe Mankiewicz, my father's uncle, my great uncle, four Oscars in two years for uh, Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve, um, 1949 and 1950, and you know uh, Cleopatra and No Way Out, a number of of, of really ter- one of the great uh, sort of writer directors of the uh, of the 1950s, and had been a producer in Hollywood before. Famously introduced Spencer Tracy to Catherine Hepburn, uh, laying the groundwork for all their films together and their and their and their lifelong romance. But my father, who could have been a great screenwriter, he he didn't think that was a serious way to make a living. Neither did his father. My grandfather was sort of always ashamed of the living he made. So my 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 dad sort of uh, uh, went in a different direction. Was a uh, for some time a entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles, but really represented Steve McQueen, James Mason, Chase Silverheels, Tonto. Used to come to the house. My brother tells me in costume. Oh my God! Um, yeah, which was you know how for my brother at like eight years old, seven years old, Tonto knocks on the door. It's pretty great. Um, probably younger than that. And then, uh, uh, but then uh, got serious. You know, the, when 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 John Kennedy was elected, it seemed like this was a you know new generation being called to service, and uh, uh, and that's how my dad got involved in the Peace Corps, and sort of from there, uh, politics was his life. So that's amazing, and I don't know how anybody could ever come after you on Twitter about anything regarding your opinion on old-time movies, given uh, the credibility you're bringing to the conversation. So, well, go ahead. I mean, everybody, everybody's, got, everybody's got an opinion, and then many times they... I mean, I love those arguments. Um, so, yeah, I mean, believe me. And, and, you know, it's look, movies, man, there are people who know a great deal uh, more than I do. Um, you know, they just... Uh, that's... Uh, when, you know, people care about this stuff, they get invested in it. Um, and, you know, I, I love knowing a lot about it, but I love being a broadcaster, too. So that's sort of my, that's the joy of this job. You know what, Ben? I'm going to bring one of those arguments right into your kitchen right now. Tell me how you feel right, about fine. this. Go ahead. Citizen Kane, little overrated, doesn't quite hold up. <laughs> okay, well, two things. One, I mean, it can't be underrated. I mean, first, like, it's just on, on logic alone, when people consider it the best movie ever, nobody's going to be like, I think it's a tad underrated. Yeah, Black No, I think, it's, I think it's overrated. I think it's a little I overrated. I know, I hear you. I'm I saying I mean, it, I, I don't, it can, I don't it know how. I don't know. Best movie ever? Be overrated. I mean, have you seen um, Rocky IV? <laughs> so, and here's an argument that I hate that you just made, but I, I, I many people make it. Um, First of all, it does hold up. That's an insane thing to say. But the mere argument of whether it holds up, the mere, like, it wasn't made to hold up, right? It was made to make a point then. And by the way, if you, you know, pay attention to politics in this country, what is it, 59 and 1978 years later, 
I'd say it was, you know, there's some presciency. It is eerily reminiscent of Donald Trump. I will say there were several moments. I I watched it not that long ago. Um, I think it's I I think it's brilliant. Uh, I think there are a number of other brilliant movies. It's not my favorite movie ever, but I would certainly tell people who wanted a sort of to start from nowhere and and grab an understanding of, of, of classic Hollywood, of the important five or so, five, six, seven films in classic Hollywood. I would definitely include Citizen Kane as one of the movies they uh, they ought to watch. So how do you get into sports and sports betting? Why is that a part of your life? So, so Herman gambled a lot. Uh, he played poker with Bogart, and they drank and they gambled, and and, and that group, not just Bogart, but they. Uh, and uh, so he'd always gambled, and he had going to the track, and and. And my uncle Don, my father's older brother, who wrote a great episode of Star Trek called The Trial and uh, wrote the pilot for Perry Mason and was uh, Oscar nominated for a Susan Hayward film screenplay called I Want to Live. But mostly what Don was was a gambler. He was also president of the Writers Guild. But again, mostly what Don was was a very (laughs) serious gambler. He played in that, I get weekly, I don't know, bi-weekly Hollywood poker game that Gabe Kaplan played in. So that was... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Regularly, so that he was Don was in a, a, a part of the fabric of that game, and and it, it cost him a great deal of money of, over the years. But on Sunday mornings, when I was a boy growing up in D.C., so like let's say seventy four, seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven, Don would call on Sunday mornings, or my dad would call him, and they would go over the games, some the football games to pick during the fall, and. Dad would pick three or four games that Don would bet on with his bookie out in L.A. And what I knew is my dad put $22 on each game that he liked, right? If he felt crazy, he might bet $44 on one game. But he'd go over with Don, and Don would include it in his bets. Don, it turns out, was betting, you know, thousands of dollars. But right. My, but I would go to the other phone, and I would listen at age seven, eight, nine. And my dad, not sneaking around. My dad knew I was listening, and then we'd talk about it. So I, at a very early age, I understood, you know, that if the uh, 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 Eagles were three-and-a-half-point favorites, but they won by three, that, that this was not something to celebrate. But for Dad, it was always fun, and he, you know, he didn't think anything of risking $20 and sharing that with his son, I think, in later years he came to understand that maybe he had unleashed something (laughs) yeah it's funny i have this uh i have this conversation with my kids all the time they know all about sports betting and they know that i do it and they know the other day that i was watching gary woodland and i was winning quite a bit of money on gary woodland because i bet him at 75 to 1 before the tournament began and um you know, and they know what it means to win by seven when the spread is seven and a half and they now know how to ask like do who do you want to win and by how much, uh, or who, who do you want to lose and by how few? And um, you know, it's like last summer when it was the World Cup the, and France won. Or uh, I was like, wow, look at uh, France advance, and my kid and I like made a fifty dollar bet on it. And I'm like, did you watch the game? He goes, yeah, we just won fifty bucks. Like he wasn't even thinking about like the excitement of the game anymore. Now he was only thinking about. The money won. It's great parenting. This is a show. great. This is a great thing to explain to your six-year-old daughter and five-year-old daughter and four-year-old daughter. Not that I have three, but I'm just her progression. And so she'll say, as I'm watching a baseball game now, but you know, months ago watching basketball, and, and she'll say, "Who are you rooting for?" And I'll say, you know, usually the team in white, the team in blue. But you know, now she's gotten. I say, "Who are we rooting for?" I go, "Defense." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. She goes, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Nobody can score." The, uh, two more innings. Can't, the, we cannot have another run. It's amazing to me 
there have been no great sports betting movies. Like this, this was part of the problem. We land yeah, on our right. dilemma with owning Mahoney. Mm-hmm. That's because- right. And, and, and I must confess that when we talk my memory, because the line that stands out in the movie, the line that best represents that movie to me, is a sports betting line. But I thought in my head there was much more sports gambling in owning Mahoney than, as I rewatched it, than that it turns out there was. Right. So we should set the scene a little bit. Like, Owning Mahoney is a movie that I think came out probably early 2000s. Starring 2003, Phil- yeah. T- starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it is about a uh, Toronto banker who uh, has a serious gambling habit, and uh, he is a big sports better, but he goes on sort of this month-long gambling bender between Atlantic City and Las Vegas, and... Um, and it sort of is about sort of his journey and what happens and how it ends up. And I don't want to sort of reveal everything before well, we get to the conversation. Right. He's also embezzling the money. Again. Well, yes, he's embezzling the money. Um, so why, do, what, why does everyone talk about this movie? Well, I think it's one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's greatest performances. And that is, uh, I, I realize what I'm saying when I say that, because there really isn't a, a bad one. Um, and I find that this one, which is super focused on him, right? It really has less to do with the gambling. In fact, we don't even see the cards mm-hmm. very often, right? We don't see the results of the games, except one. And in fact, I watched three movies sort of to prep for this because I got excited, so I rewatched The Gambler, and I also watched a, a movie that even the title doesn't make any sense, Lay the Favorite. Yeah. Um, but, yep. uh, <laughs> also based on, a, based on a book. Also based on a yep. book, right? Although super loosely. Um, so uh, um, there's just there's very little uh, gambling action, and there is this intense focus on addiction. I mean, what Owning Mahoney really is is an addiction movie um, more than anything else. And I think if you look at it as an addiction movie, then I think you can recognize one of the great addiction movies because he is. Uh, Roger Ebert points out in his review, which I did not pick up on, but was clear as soon as I read it afterwards that you know often never even you don't he doesn't even look at the camera it's like he's soup he you know there's a degree he has a degree he's carrying this shame sort of with him and he's chasing winnings so that he can lose um and he's again embezzling so he has money to lose um and i just really fully related to i fully related to 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 hoffman's plight and his desperation and his narrow-mindedness, the, the way he ignores his girlfriend, fiance, when she sort of comes to the table and he can't even, he can't even look up. She's getting dragged away by, from security and he, he won't even look at her because he's at the craps table and he's on a run. Uh, so that, I think, is why it's great. Um, uh, as a, for the sports in it, the, don't make a, they're not even really in it. Uh, even though there's that one great, great line where he's so frantic, he's got to go to a meeting and he says, just give me uh, all the uh, uh, home teams in the National League and all the away teams in the American League for $1,000 each. And he hangs up the phone. I did like, love that. Uh, I love yeah, that. And then, like, he tried to do it again with horse racing and baseball. And the bookmaker's like, no, I'm not taking his money. This is disrespectful to my business. <laughs> Right, I love that. He goes, hey, "I don't do this." What do you mean? All the home teams, all the ways? Nobody exactly. This is a serious thing, and, and so I like that there was and there's humanity for the bookmaker 
uh, both in owning Mahoney and in and and Paul Sorvino in the Gambler. They both sort of, you know, uh, like you know, they, you don't imagine a bookmaker saying, "Hey, man, take a deep breath. You sure you want to do this?" Yeah, that would have been a better movie to go with the Gambler. Well, uh, well, I mean, I, I think that I think they're both great, but the Gambler. I, I'm not. I didn't mean to knock the Gambler. The, by the way, let's be clear: the original. <laughs> yeah, the original. The original. Honestly, the original. Like when I was writing the odds, um, uh, we watched so many. The main character, Alan Boston, is such a huge movie buff and a '70s movie buff that we watched like three or four movies that that he felt defined sort of what it was like mm-hmm. to live his life. Uh, the Gambler was one of them. Um, what was that one with Elliot Gould? California... California Suite with California George Siegel Suite. and Elliot Gould. Right. Another really good one, yeah. Yeah, he loved California Suite. And then for some reason, like, we watched Gene Hackman in the movie where he's sort of always using the listening devices. What was that? The uh, Conversation. The Conversation. Another, great, great, another great one, movie. right. Yeah, that's the movie Francis Ford Coppola made in between The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. It's the greatest sandwich movie of all time. It was an amazing movie. Had nothing to do yeah. with gambling. I don't know, but, but he's also like... Related you know, to it. Alan's a strange yeah. guy. The thing you just made me potentially appreciate owning Mahoney even more because you laid out a couple things and and Blackjack is right like this is about a guy who's leading a double life and so he's a bank and it's a true story by the way all mm-hmm. based on a true story yep. he is a banker in Toronto like a mid level associate manager banker who's really trusted and he's able to use that trust and goodwill and sort of being a guy who um, is beloved at his bank to then take advantage of the rules and start withdrawing from the accounts that he manages. Uh, and then he goes on these benders in Atlantic City and, and sort of one of these subplots is, I think this is why it's about called owning Mahoney, is these two competing properties, one in Atlantic City, one in Vegas, that are really trying to own him as a whale. That's right. And trying to yeah, compete right. for him as a whale. Um, and there's one really sort of nefarious, you know, AC casino boss who is really trying to manipulate Mahoney in ways that he doesn't even need to because Mahoney is so driven to gamble as much as he possibly can. Um, yeah, one of the, that's John Hurt, one of the real sort of great actors of his generation in a very flashy role. Can, let me just, I, I want to mention something that you just talked about that, that, because one of the reasons that the things that most people, I don't know if it, if it counts us, but, you know, I, I do get the fantasy of if I go to Vegas and things work great and I'm winning, the thing has really never happened, that, you know, you get all these extras, right? That there's the, that there, a casino boss is going to give you a great suite, right? And upgrade you and you can show your friends what a big shot you are and you get free dinner at the, you know, at this great, they offers first the Japanese restaurant and maybe an Italian restaurant to, to Mahoney in the movie, and they even bring a girl for him. And he doesn't care about the room. He doesn't care about the food. He doesn't care about the girl. All he cares about is his addiction. All he cares about is the obsession. When finally they talk about food, there's a great moment in the movie. He's like, I want some ribs, no sauce, and a Coke, I guess. Right. Like, you know, he, if I it have doesn't to. matter to him. That's just sustenance. Um, all he wants to do. His gamble, he doesn't even really change clothes. It doesn't matter whether there's a beautiful woman there. It doesn't matter what the restaurant is. It doesn't matter how great the room is. His buddy loves the room, but he could care less. He doesn't, he just, you know, eventually he'll need, knows he needs to sleep for four hours before he goes back down and gambles. 
Ben, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on something because when Chad started this conversation, he indicated that he didn't like the movie. And uh, to be honest, I really didn't love it either. And you pointed out at the beginning of your comments by saying it's a movie about addiction, not really about gambling. And I think that's right. Do you think one of the reasons why maybe the movie didn't do as well as people had hoped, in, you know, in spite of the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman was as, as good as he was in it, is that it's not like your typical addiction movie in that he doesn't really have anything redeeming about him. He doesn't seem to be trying to get help ever. There's no even subtle nod to that. He just seems to be very cold and detached and just an unlikable character. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I think that's a fair point. I, I don't agree with it, but I, I definitely think it's a, a fair point, unlike the first ridiculous Citizen Kane point. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I can't believe this guy's still on the phone. Um, the, uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, I uh, you know, look, I mean, this is, I guess, you know, revealing for me, and I'm sure it's revealing for other gamblers, though, is that, you know, he, he's, he's, he's not cruel, except there's one moment when he yells at his friend for, for what he perceives as, you know, um, um, uh, you know, as chilling a hot streak. Um, but he even makes that up to him. He comes up to the room. He's like, you know, like, I, you know, there's that look that says, I know I was an ass. Um, so uh, I do identify with him. He's never, he is fully focused on the, on the addiction. Yes, he never, but it wouldn't have been true. It would have felt false if he'd had, he has these recognition calls with Minnie Driver, his fiance, like, boy, I know I've let you down. But really, he in the throes of the addiction, that's all you can focus on. Um, he won't bar, he won't steal from. He doesn't steal from her. He doesn't take money out of her pocket. She even offers him like a grand total of three thousand dollars, and right. he looks at her like, "I'm not sure you fully understand how much money I've uh, I've lost here. Your your retirement account is not going to help me." So I I did identify with him, but I think it's a fair point. He doesn't do anything like you know feed a homeless cat. You know um, uh, he is solely focused on satisfying his particular hunger. The uh it, it's also like to me it felt like it was a small independent movie. My wife and I have these fights all the time. I'm the popcorn guy. Like I want to go see Will Smith. I want to go see like a big movie that has the highs and lows and all the sort of superficial yet very visceral moments and yeah. like has a real narrative to it. And my wife just wants to go see the squid and the whale. Like, she just wants to, you know, pop into the middle of someone's day and, like, it, she doesn't care if there's a beginning or an end. She just wants to live in that moment. This, to me, was like a squid and the whale for gambling. Like, it didn't have any ups. It didn't have any downs. It just had, like, the attention, the attention of him gambling. And uh, then exactly what you thought would happen would happen. Like, he got caught. Yeah, like, like the, the, he got caught in great. That's great. And he knows he's going to get caught. Of course he knows he's going to get caught. I definitely think it had downs. <laughs> I'll grant you right. the upside. Um, you know, I think that, that both those kinds of movies enhance our enjoyment of the other. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I am certainly, obviously, you know, I'm sort of duty bound by my job to appreciate uh, both types of stories. Um, you know, I, there's nothing, uh, there are few things as annoying as, as sort of a, a, a movie fan who won't allow themselves to be dazzled by a successful big movie where a lot of money is spent where they nailed it, right? Where it's good. I mean, where it's bad, it's terrible. But when, when they really get it right in the kind of movie that you described that you like, Chad, that that's great. And when people are like, oh, it's too, you know, 
I mean, if you make it well, then let's enjoy it. Let's celebrate it. But but I also think that there is room for the squid and the whale of gambling movies. And uh, and I think that uh, this, this 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 may well be this may well be it. I also think it didn't you know it doesn't do well because gambling sports like. Uh, somebody with an alcohol addiction or a heroin addiction is identifiable, and there's a sense among the audience that, that an accepted sense that, that uh, this is a disease, right? In the end, you want to help these people. Uh, I don't think we have that in general as a society with gambling, that that is seen as a weakness. We'll just stop gambling. Don't do it anymore. Like that is not seen as the same level of addiction. It doesn't engender the same kind of sympathy for you or for your family, it feels selfish and indulgent. And I think part of that is driven by the majority of people not understanding the gambling world. So they're, 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 frequently, they're turned off by numbers. We live in a world where people are, are frequently, many people are, are turned off by numbers. Not the people listening to this podcast, clearly, but you know, many of us are turned off. That's what we need. We need to make the great sports betting movie that isn't about addiction, but about the process of sports betting and people who can do it and do it well and lead dramatically interesting lives. And they happen to be sports bettors without you know, it but, having to be about their addiction. The thing of it is, though, I'm going to use one of my friends as an example. Great guy. I'm about to go. I'm going to see him this weekend. We go on an annual baseball trip. We're going to Cleveland. And he... Uh, went to Brown and Georgetown Law School. He's a very successful guy. He's smart and he loves sports. He's sort of been the guy I've, my, of my friends who I who knows the second most amount about sports in my. And we go to Vegas every now and then, and and we'll and it, and if and if there's a baseball game, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to take the Indians. They're they're minus uh, 145 against the Tigers, right? And he still had every time. He's like, well, so what does that mean? And I'm like, you, how do you not, we've been going for 20 years. How do I still have to say, I mean, you got to bet $145 to win a hundred, but if you bet a hundred and the Indians win you, and the, then the Tigers win, you'll win 135. That's what the plus 135 means. They still don't get it. Like, and they're, and he's smart and gambles. So it, it doesn't connect for some people. And then some of these movies, even Owning Mahoney got it a little wrong, but Lay the Favorite, the, the, the language in Lay the Favorite was like, why would you make this movie unless you loved gambling? But these guys don't even know what they're talking about half the time. They refer to the NCAA tournament playoffs. Nobody right. uses the word playoffs well, in regard to the NCAA tournament, right? But, like, so who thing. makes this? Right, exactly. Um, ben, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I. I enjoyed the conversation more than I enjoyed the movie. Um, <laughs> By the way, let me say real quick, I know you got to go, but all three of those movies, Lay the Favor, which was horrible, The Gambler, which is great, and I think Owning Mahoney was great, all of them have dramatic moments that come down to free throws. I know. I mean, I don't, I don't remember Lay the Favorite, yeah. but that was actually a great scene in the movie when Oni Mahoney, uh, when Philip Seymour Hoffman is practically in the television on that last free throw. And that is actually a moment where that does right. feel like a gut punch. And that's, you know, and that's, and that happened in the Georgetown game. I don't know what the spread was. I tried to find it, but James Worthy after the steal or the, when Freddie Brown yeah. threw in the pass, he then missed those two free throws. Um, and they, they won by one. Um, and in the gambler, it's James Kahn in the tub. Yes. listening, And J Jerry West has three to make two. <laughs> in a that's exactly right. Down one and he missed all three. I totally remember that. It's really great. Yeah.
That's what I'm going to watch next. I'm going to rewatch The Gambler next. That's going to be next in the summer movie series that I'm doing at my house. <laughs> well, that one you'll enjoy more, I'm certain. Ben Mankiewicz, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for these suggestions. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, I might have to have you come back on so we can talk about The Gambler. I'll come on any time. Thanks to, to both of you for, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. If you want to do this thing right for the next movie, you have to invite me up to the mansion in Greenwich and we watch it together. I'm not inviting you anywhere. That's how we do it. All right. This has been The Favorites from the Action Network. We're going to get out of here because we're keeping Blackjack up at this point. Thank you, Matt Moore, for coming on, giving us that Warriors, Raptors, Lakers, future odds breakdown. Thank you to Ben Makowitz, host of Turner Classic Movies, for coming on. This has been The Favorites. Download it from Apple Podcasts. Rate, subscribe, review, radio.com slash the Action Network. Until next time, Blackjack, what do we say? Love you. Love you.